You're now listening to the Major League Real Estate Podcast, Episode 7. Welcome to the Major League Real Estate Podcast, a podcast for operators of large-scale real estate portfolios. My name is Brandon Hall, and I'm your host. Together with my co-host, Dylan Brown, we talk about tax and legal strategies, and we bring on operators of large portfolios for in-depth discussions on how they grew their business. We hope you enjoy, and with that, let's get to it. What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of the Major League Real Estate Podcast. We've got a really cool guest on today. But before we do, I wanted to ask Dylan here, what are you doing for the end of the year, man? The holidays coming up. We're recording this kind of mid to end December. Got any fun plans? Yeah, huge fun plans, but the same every year. And so my family's pretty big, you know, both sides. I got two sets of parents. So basically making my rounds all across Western Minnesota, starting in Annandale for the night before Christmas, and then ended up at my parents' place in St. Michael uh, the day of. And I'm sure the week before we'll be traveling a little bit further, maybe even hit up north. It'll be fun. We love it. So definitely few too many calories, I will say, that many Christmases, <laughs> but always a great time. There's a, uh, there's a movie about that, right? Isn't there a movie about like four Christmases or something? <laughs> there should be if there's not. I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it. <laughs> it just seems like pure and utter chaos. I mean, I, I respect it. Uh, you got to get yeah. the family time in. But yeah, we, we are uh, lucky this year. So I've got two kids and we told our both sets of our parents, my in-laws, then my parents, we're doing Christmas at our house from now oh, on. Man. So we get, to, we get to kick back and leverage our kids to control the, uh, <laughs> control the dream. Whose house we go to. <laughs> yeah. Man. Well, I, I yeah. am envious of that in ways. And then in other ways, I'm glad I'm not having to do all the cleanup. So I guess there's pros and cons <laughs> of both. But, uh, but yeah, man. Pros and I'm, cons of both. Yeah. <laughs> all right, cool. Well, well, we've got a really cool episode here today. We've got Isaac coming on from Madison Specs to uh, talk all about cost segregation studies. You know, one of the big things that I wanted to point out, and I know we've got a couple cool things here, but you got to stay and listen until the very end, because at the very end of the episode, we talk about partial asset dispositions. Yeah. And it's a significant tax benefit for operators. And the reason I want you to stay till the end is not many people know about this. Not many tax preparers are really paying attention to it. But it could create cash flow for your syndication, at least on the individual side, right? In the time in which you need cash flow, right? right? Interest rates are rising. Everybody's seeing that cash flow compress a little bit. So you want to find ways to create cash flow. This is a way to do it. So stay to the very end and listen to the partial asset disposition piece because I think it's really important to know. Absolutely. Obviously, everybody knows about cost segs, but I think once you dive into the details, there's a lot that people could learn. But before we get too into that, obviously, we want to cover just a little bit of our CPA insights. Just like we do every week, we want to cover some things that are happening in the market, things that we're seeing, things that maybe our clients are seeing. And this week, we're going to bring to you some news. It's about the IRS prepping for at least 8 billion crypto information's returns, which is insane to me. So basically, what does this mean? So there's this regulation that was recently released and is going to come into effect January 1st, 2026. But basically requiring 1099 DA, which is digital asset, to be filed for all sorts of transactions relating to cryptocurrency. Okay, fair enough. I think that's a great idea because this is a new area where we haven't had a lot of visibility. But the issue here is just the sheer number of transactions that would result in this filing, it would more than double the amount of 1099s that need to be received by the IRS every year. Think about that for one second. You know, we've already got a bunch of different types of 1099s out there, but just by introducing the 1099DA alone, we're more than doubling 
versus the total other types out there, which to me, it seems a little bit premature. I don't think they quite realize how they're going to process all of that. That's an incredible amount of information returns, 8 billion. Over what time period are they expecting the 8 billion returns to hit? Is that annually? That's annually. And just like any other 1099, you're talking about needing it to be done by the end of January, because we know it's it's not like a partnership or an individual tax return where you have later due dates. Most of the time, 1099s are due 30 days after the end of the year. So just think about the burden on the people filing them, let alone the yeah. burden on the IRS trying to process all of them. To me, it just seems crazy. So not necessarily a burden to the individual taxpayers themselves, but definitely right. a burden to the, the brokerages and a significant processing burden to the IRS, which I guess in a roundabout way does actually impact all the taxpayers, number right. one, just from a, a timing perspective, but two, because that's where your tax dollars are going. Exactly. And I guess it would impact the individuals who aren't being honest about crypto reporting. <laughs> <laughs> and now they have to be. <laughs> definitely, definitely. And, uh, you, you know, it just makes the shoebox a little bit heavier. You know, when people say they put all the tax documents in the shoebox and drop it on their CPA's desks, I'm just saying, I'm just imagining how many 1099 DAs are going to be out there. But, well, time will tell. And just like many things, I'd be curious to know if this ends up coming into effect January 1st, 2026, or if we see extensions like we have on a lot of the other heavy reporting changes that the IRS have yeah. kind of been kicking the can yeah. down the road on. So. Fascinating. Yep. All right. Well, thanks for sharing that during our CPA Insights segment. Let's go ahead and bring Isaac onto the show. Isaac, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for hosting me, Brandon and Dylan. I'm excited. Absolutely. Absolutely. So tell us a little bit about what you have going on and how you're involved in real estate. So a few years back, I was actually managing a high-end retail clothing shop over here in our community. I actually was doing pretty nicely and I liked what I was doing. After talking to many people and I'm a, I'm a big entrepreneurial type of mindset and uh, I get excited about things and like innovation. And they told me like, hey, you gotta hit up the real estate world. You gotta do something. You gotta do get involved to some level. I met a few people. We talked about COSAC, we talked about debt brokerage, we talked about insurance, we talked about a lot, a lot of different avenues. And I like the niche of COSAG. I felt like debt brokerage, there's there's 10 debt brokers for every owner. COSAG, it's not like that. I also love the educational aspect of COSAG. I could go to events and actually speak about it and all the misconceptions and misunderstandings of when it's relevant, when it's not relevant. And I slowly got involved in the real estate industry through that, looking at deals, dealing with all different types of operators and owners from retail to mobile home parks, to multifamily. And I haven't looked back. It's been tremendous. God has granted me a, a nice deep dive into the world of real estate, made great connections. I have some awesome clients ranging from $200,000 Airbnb clients all the way up to hundreds of millions of dollars worth of multifamily portfolios that I've done nice work for. So it's been exciting and uh, I, I'm very excited for what's to come. That's awesome, man. I, I'm sure a lot of our clients or listeners are hearing this and saying, you know, I know all about cost segs, but maybe you just want to give us a brief overview of a little bit of the deep dive because you're at Madison Specs and they have a lot of different services that they offer the real estate investors. And a lot of our listeners might be on more of the upper tier where they're, they are looking at million to $10 million acquisitions. Just talk a little bit about what you do for them and a little bit of your day to day. Absolutely. The way I always like to start off the conversation at Cossack to every single guy I talk to is as follows. 
Say, for example, I owed you 100 bucks and I came to you with two options. Would you rather take that 100 bucks over a 10 year period, take 10 bucks a year, or would you rather take 30 bucks in year one and the remaining $70 over the following nine years? The way I look at it is a dollar today is worth more than a dollar tomorrow. Take that money up front, reinvest it, and get nice returns off that. Cost segregation, the way I deem it, is depreciation on steroids. So for example, many people don't know this. When you buy an investment property, any investment property, you're entitled to depreciation. Even though the market value goes up, which is appreciation, and that's why many of us are in the real estate game to begin with, the government views, and obviously through the IRS, they view that your property is going down in value due to the fact that it's older, you will get almost the entire purchase price back over 27 and a half or 39 years, 27 and a half residential, 39 for commercial, except for the land. Obviously, we got to subtract land. Land is never depreciable. But aside for the land, you will get the entire purchase price back over that period of time. What COSAG does is it accelerates those depreciation benefits by coming into the property, identifying certain components that are eligible to be taken on faster tracks, front load your depreciation for you, your partners, your investors, use that extra capital to reinvest in real estate. I love that. And, and so just so that everybody listening uh, is following along, when you invest in real estate, you get depreciation. Depreciation is a, we call it a vantum expense because it's just a calculation based on the acquisition price minus land divided by 27 and a half years. So you get to claim that expense every single year. You don't have to come more out of pocket for it, much like you do with repairs. To get an expense for repairs, you actually have to make repairs that year. So depreciation, you just get to claim it every single year. It doesn't matter if you paid all cash for the property up front. doesn't matter if you 100% financed it, 70% financed it. The calculation for depreciation is still the same. A cost segregation study is effectively the practice of saying, hey, not everything that makes up this building is going to last 27 and a half years. Things are going to fall apart faster. So we get to depreciate those things faster. So a cost segregation study allocates the value of your purchase price to all these different class lives, meaning depreciation lives. So now instead of depreciating carpet, $10,000 of carpet over 27 and a half years, I'm going to depreciate $10,000 of carpet over five years. And I'm going to write off now $2,000 a year. And if we have any accountants listening to this, I know it's not exactly how it works, but just for simplicity. Now you get $2,000 a year for five years, and now you fully depreciated your $10,000 of carpet versus taking 10,000 divided by 27 and a half years, which whatever that is, I can't do that math in my head. So that's the benefit of that cost seg, right? It pulls forward the depreciation. And a lot of times though, we still get people that are like, I don't even know if I want to do that. Like, why would I do that? I'll just get the depreciation eventually. Because if I pull forward all the depreciation, yeah, it's great for five years, but then it drops off the cliff in year five, seven, and 15, why would I do this? What do you tell them? That's a great question. And that's, that's a question that I face almost every day. And from an investor perspective, it's a valid question, especially in certain scenarios. They don't want the property to be someone in the red. They want the, the profits to, I guess, outweigh the, the NOIs of the property. But for example, the, the way I usually approach this topic is very nice, you're gonna be getting less over time, but what can you go ahead and do with that money? The way the world views it is time value money. Um, and you guys know that. I speak to people all the time in the street and they're like, hey, Cossack Isaac, how you doing? Uh, tell me the bad parts about Cossack. And I just tell them one thing, 
is that if I would offer you a random businessman in the street, nothing to do with real estate, pay me five grand and I'll let you pay your tax liability in five years from now. Would you do it? The simple answer is yes. Obviously, you could get into the conversation of is tax rates going to go up? Are they going to go down? That's always a great conversation. But I pay. I pay today $5,000 to get my uh, tax liability pushed off a few years. Yeah, absolutely. It is the time value of money conversation. And the way that I like to help investors and even sponsors sometimes think about this is we would probably all agree that it would be silly to leave $500,000 sitting in a checking account earning half a percent per year, right? But if you don't do the cost segregation study, you are effectively doing the same thing because embedded in the property that you've purchased is a savings account, basically, that you can tap into via depreciation over time, or you can tap into it upfront via a cost segregation study. So we want to tap into that before that savings account is eroded away by inflation year over year over year. We want to tap into it. We want to extract those tax savings and ideally redeploy them. And I mean, even today, you can still redeploy them at treasury rates of like four and a half percent. So it's a good deal most of the time. When is it a bad deal? When should you not do a cost seg study? That's a great question. So a client reached out to me last week and he said, hey, Isaac, I'm ready to move forward. And I said to him, I'll just make up his name just for, I want to shout out his name. I said, hey, John, I don't think it's smart. I don't think it makes sense over here. He's like, hey, why? Long story short, he wasn't really taxable. It was more complicated than just the simple, he wasn't taxable. I figured out he wasn't taxable. So if somebody's not getting hit with a tax liability, or if somebody, and this is more for the smaller guys, not the big syndication companies, big investment firms, but somebody has a few rentals and he's not a real estate professional, which is so, so important, and you guys know this yourselves, if he's not a real estate professional, then he's not gonna be able to go ahead and use those deductions against his income. So very nice, he unlocked deductions, but against what? Now, obviously we have the STR loophole. There's so many different ways we can navigate this and try to implement it. But there are many times you come to a roadblock, you can't use those deductions. There's no point in doing a cost study. That's a good point you mentioned because you have to look and say, are there other factors at play here that would make this either irrelevant today or for a very long time into the future? As a lot of our listeners might know, if you generate those deductions and you aren't able to use them, you might have a possibility to carry them forward. But I've seen plenty instances where maybe it is somebody who's full-time in real estate and has developments going up left and right. They might have more net operating losses to carry forward than they know what to do with for the foreseeable future. And another example that I've also run across, and maybe, maybe you can speak to this too, but if you've got an individual who is really planning on holding onto this property for a very short period of time, is that, I mean, I'm supposing that a lot of times when you hear that, it kind of eats away at some of that. It's a, it's a great point, Dylan. Uh, it's something I forgot to mention. Uh, depreciation recapture is definitely a, a very big topic and something that I discuss with every single one of my prospects and clients. One of the first questions I ask is about real estate professional status. The next question is generally how long do you plan on holding on to this property? Even if they do say they're only planning on holding on to it for a year, my follow-up question is, do you plan on 1031 exchanging this property? 1031 exchanging this property will avoid the depreciation recapture. Not that it makes sense automatically to do, but then it becomes a conversation. If you're gonna only hold on to it for a year, unless we're talking about a huge tax liability, many times I would deem it with the client and the client's accountant, not worth it to do, like you mentioned. So 
Let's actually talk a little bit about depreciation recapture because I know, especially in the CPA space, there's this very wide belief that it's kind of twofold. One, depreciation recapture negates the benefits of a cost seg, but we've already addressed that with the time value of money theory. But the other is that bonus depreciation is a big marketing tactic and nobody ever talks about depreciation recapture. So let's talk about depreciation recapture. What is it? Let's start there. It's a great question. So again, the way I like to approach it is as follows. Very, very similar. Depreciation recapture on cost seg is a very similar idea to 1031 capital gains. If you 1031 the property, you defer your capital gain. But hence the fact it's a deferral. You're not erasing it. People have to know when they do a cost seg, you are not erasing your tax liability. You're deferring it and kicking the bucket down the road. In the same way by a 1031 exchange, you exchange the property, you defer your cap gain. But eventually, if you sell it without replacing it again, you get hit with that cap gain. So too, with depreciation recapture with a cost seg, you get to kick the bucket down the road so long that you hold on to the property or that you go ahead and you 1031 it when you sell it. The 1031 will take care of the depreciation recapture. It will lower the basis of the new property. The second you don't do that, you get hit with depreciation recapture, which means that the same tax liability that you got out of will come back to you at a later point. Now, there are many components and different nuances. People have to know that depreciation recapture is generally maxed out at 25% as opposed to regular uh if you do a cost seg today, you could offset ordinary income at 37.5%. So there's a 12.5% difference. Obviously, that is a deeper topic. But off the bat, that's something for people to know. You got to crunch your numbers and see what you're dealing with. Yeah. So typically, the bonus depreciation will be recaptured at your ordinary tax rate. And that is where the question of what are the tax rates in the future, that question kind of comes into play. Whereas the straight line depreciation, that's going to be capped at that 25% rate. But still, even when you model this out, most of the time, the cost seg will still have a positive net present value, right? And that's kind of how you make these financial decisions is you, you look at the net present value of the decision and you decide if it's positive, you make it. And if it's negative, you don't. Uh, most of the time, the cost segs come out to be a positive NPV, even when you factor in that eventual depreciation recapture, because again, you've stripped out the tax savings and you've redeployed that and you've made money off of that. And you can do so even in today's environment at a risk-free level, uh, very safe returns for that type of project. But you mentioned something that you can roll the depreciation into the next project via 1031 exchange. So talk to us a little bit about that. Are there any rules with personal property going into the next 1031 exchange? So when you say personal property, Brandon, what do you mean by personal property? Well, isn't there like a rule that's like, it's a 15% threshold for like tangential personal property rolling into the next 1031 exchange? I am not familiar with that. In my experience, all the guys that I've dealt with and we've rolled it over via 1031, it's been a pretty simple and smooth process. They bought a property for a million bucks. Um, they did a cost seg. We got them 200 grand in year one. Obviously, the depreciable basis is now at 800. Let's take out land for a second. They buy a new property. Sometimes it really actually pretty interesting. You buy a new property for $2 million. Now you actually have a higher basis. You sell the property for 1.5. You buy a new property for 2 million. Now, even though the depreciable basis is lower because you rolled over the cost seg into the new property, but there's still enough meat on the bone actually to do another cost segregation many, many times. So in my experience, again, my experience has shown that it's pretty simple in terms of how you roll it over, the depreciable basis, 
will be obviously lower. And that's the only ramification. So I want to take a second to explain the passive activity loss rules. And then I've got a question for both of you guys. I think it'll be a good question. So the passive activity loss rules were implemented in 1986. Before that, you could buy rental real estate and use the losses to offset your income. There is basically no rules around it. But now if you buy rental real estate, the rental real estate is by default going to be classified as a passive activity. So any losses generated from your passive activity will not be able to be used to offset your regular non-passive income, such as my W-2 income, my business income. So what happens sometimes with sponsors is the sponsor really benefits from the cost seg because the sponsor is typically a real estate professional. They're doing this full time or they're they're running multiple real estate businesses full time. So a cost segregation study that yields a large loss that the sponsor can tap into, and we've got episodes on how that all works from a tax perspective. But if the sponsor can tap into that depreciation, into that tax loss, it's super beneficial for the sponsor. The question though, that we, we field a lot is how beneficial is it for my limited partners? And for the limited partners, if this is a passive loss, so if that K1 shows a negative 80,000 bucks that I'm going to plug into my 1040, if I'm not materially participating, that's passive. And I may have my own portfolio. I may have the ability to make a grouping election to make it non-passive, or I may not. But for most of the LPs out there, it's just going to be a passive loss. And they're not going to be able to use the loss to offset any of their income. So instead, that loss will just be suspended. And it will be carried forward until some future passive activity that they're involved with either generates net income or liquidates at a gain. That loss could be used at that point to offset either the gain on sale or the income because the gain on sale would be classified as passive activity income per the regs. But sometimes an LP can use the losses because they have other passive activities that are generating income or because they are able to group their rentals together, thus group in this LP investment. They're able to qualify as a real estate professional and materially participate on the grouped activity. So these losses are good for that LP. So my question to both of you guys, and I think it's going to be interesting hearing both your perspectives on this, and Isaac, will let you go first. If I'm operating and sponsoring a deal and I'm raising capital, should I always do a cost seg study? Absolutely. So this is something I deal with on a daily. We know that in order to be a real estate professional, you got to spend 750 hours a year or more. If the IRS counted all the amount of time that I spent talking about this topic, and that would count towards rep status, I would have like maybe 10, 20,000 hours. This is a conversation that I deal with with sponsors all the time. And it's actually a big problem in today's industry because many sponsors are always looking for equity. They're trying to squeeze every single last dollar out of guys rightfully so, to get them for their deal. And they'll promote the cost seg. And many times, like what you said, many, many times, the LPs actually won't benefit from the cost seg because they're not a real estate professional and they don't have enough passive activity and passive proceeds to offset. So how do you approach this? How does that work? So first and foremost, I always ask people right away, are you married? Is your spouse working? If their spouse is not working, and they actually own some rentals and they put it in her name and they're able to document some sort of something and then they LP on the side, obviously that will be the way to go in terms of reps. But let's say somebody can't get that done, they're both on W-2s 
and they invest in syndications on the side and they don't really have enough passive proceeds to offset, they won't really benefit. People have to understand that there's a misconception out there. People think they can only offset proceeds from that specific deal. They're able to offset any passive proceeds. Something that I've seen people do, and it's definitely a gray area, and I'm not recommending it, speak to your local Orthodox CPA, but something I've seen people do is, let's say I have a guy, he's in, he owns a big Amazon business. So he made a spouse a passive partner in his Amazon business. So let's say he's making $500,000 a year and she's a 40% partner. So she's making a nice amount of that money. So they have a lot of passive proceeds. So when he goes ahead and invests in real estate syndications, he can offset passive because passive against passive, like we said, obviously you're able to do. So the smart guys and the smart Alex figure some way out. Can it hold up in an audit? I can't promise you. All I can say is, is that there are many, many times that LPs do end up on the wrong side of the street when it comes to these things, especially in the state of New York. There's something called advacs. The LPs really suffer when there's a cost seg done, and that's something to be aware of. Um, every sponsor has to know that. Um, what I, just to end off, something that I speak to my sponsors about is that when you're promoting the cost seg for your deal, get me on a call with your potential investors and let me explain the good parts, the bad parts, if it makes sense, if it doesn't make sense. Don't just tell them for every single $100,000 you invest, you're gonna get 30, $40,000 on the dollar, uh, 30 cents on the dollar, or $30,000 for every every $100,000 you invest. It could be they can't use it. So definitely important to know. Dylan, what do you think? Did sponsors always cost seg? Well, I have two answers for you and it depends, but I actually, I'll tell you what it depends on. So I won't leave you hanging. But first of all, I just wanted to say that if I had a, a nickel for every one of those creative solutions that I've heard LPs try to come up with, I mean, it happens all the time in our business, Isaac. I mean, you wouldn't be surprised, but you'd be amazed, right? It's just something that we see a lot. But to answer the question, Brandon, it's going to depend on hold term. And let me define what I mean by hold term. And I'm assuming, first of all, in this answer that let's just say for simplicity's sake, the LP doesn't really have anything else that they can use the the losses to offset, right? If they can, to Isaac's point, you know, that could shift the needle towards doing the cost sec. But if we're talking about a syndication that we've seen lately, especially in the last five years, where a property is planned on being held for only three years, and the deal is structured in such a way that the sponsor, the general partner in the deal, doesn't really have a means to take any of those losses, which we've talked about that in other episodes, let's just say that all of the losses are going to go to the LPs. I have a hard time determining that a cost seg makes sense in those scenarios, especially considering more often than not with the modern deals that we're seeing today, it takes a period of stabilization before we even see any operating income in these properties. And before you know it, they're doing a taxable disposition on those properties. Now, to Isaac's point, there might be an opportunity for that property to be 1031 exchanged, or if the plan is to hold that property longer than three to four years, then I'd say it shifts the needle towards COSIC. With all of that said, Brandon, to the very first point we were making about time value of money, there is a certain threshold of deal size. I'd maybe put that around you know, $10 million building where I'm inclined to just say do the cost seg all the time because even, even the two to three shift in the time value of money probably makes it worth it just because listeners have to realize too that there's always a cost associated with doing the study. The study is not a cheap thing to do and maybe Isaac can speak to kind of the pricing. But anytime, if you're thinking like a finance person and you're calculating a net present value, you're just determining the differences in cash flow resulting from the decision you made compared against the cost of making the decision. The cost of making the decision, meaning 
doing the cost segregation study. So that's, I guess, my long-winded answer, and it, it depends on the hold period up to a certain point, and then beyond a certain point, call it 10 million. You know, don't mark my words. We're just calling that threshold above that. It starts to be a no-brainer. You both made really great points. My two cents on this topic is. If you're sponsoring a deal and you're in the multi-million dollar building range and you don't know if you should do a cost seg, you should probably lean towards doing a cost seg because the reality is, is that you don't know what is going on in every single one of your LPs tax lives, right? And you don't know, it's impossible to predict, even if you did know every single one of your LPs and you were doing all their tax returns and you knew exactly what was going on, it's still impossible to predict what sort of opportunities might come up for those LPs at future points where passive losses generated today that have been suspended might actually help them. So I, I kind of lean more towards the, you should lean towards doing a cost seg on most of these projects. But you actually brought up something really interesting, Dylan. You mentioned costs. So Isaac, how do companies that provide cost segregation services come up with the price of the service? It's a great question. So there's two types of costs that companies, um, I think people are pretty familiar with this, but I think it's important for people to know. There's the algorithm-based type of software study where you could press a link online, get a study 20 minutes later, the idea is, I'm pretty, I think I'm pretty familiar with the idea. It's that they just, based on this type of property, these types of properties that we generally get X amount of dollars in depreciation, um, will give you that. As opposed to an engineering method, and that's really the tier, the tier one companies, that's what they do. And there's a lot of great companies out there, KPKG and Madison Specs and Bedford. There's, there's some great companies out there that do high quality work. The engineering method is actually dissecting every component of the property. We'll come in either via a virtual tour or a physical tour. We'll actually look over every single, not every single room, a multifamily property. We'll look at like two or three units of each type, one of the studio and then the two bedroom one, et cetera. Um, so obviously the engineering studies cost more than the software studies. So we generally charge anywhere, I would say from four to, $8,000 for a study. Obviously, if we're talking about a 300 square foot office space or industrial complex, it's going to be much more. Um, I'm doing right now, we charge them 15 grand, a huge new constructed hotel in Manhattan, an $83 million build. So it's, it's a very extensive job. But generally, I would say anywhere from four dollars to $8,000 range. Now, other companies are definitely in the same, same market. Something that I think is very important for every single person to know, and I deal with this all the time, is that somebody will come back to me and say, hey, Isaac, I got a quote from another company at $500 less. Can you help me? And sometimes, yeah, absolutely will come down. But something people have to know, and this is not just with software studies. This is a competent cost-seg firm versus a non-competent cost-seg firm. If I'm going to get you $50,000 more in depreciation than the other firm, yes, you might be saving $3,000 up front. But on the back end, you're losing out on a lot of extra cash in your and your investors' pockets. People don't realize that. Besides the fact about audit protection, which is important, responsiveness, there's so many different factors that go into a cost set company, but just straight up, black and white, if we're going to get you $50,000 more or sometimes even more, you're making a wrong decision. So I try to educate people on that, but 
I would say you're safe to say between four and $8,000 for traditional cost-sake study. That makes sense. That's pretty competitive from what I've been seeing. And, and two things that you kind of mentioned stood out to me that I want to dive into, or just at least highlight a little bit. First of all, being in, in the scenario where you're paying for an engineering approach cost segregation study, like you said, you're actually paying for someone to be boots on the ground. They have to visit the property. They have to take a look at the blueprints. They have to take a look, pictures all around. There's sometimes software such as Bluebeam, if you've ever met with somebody who's done a cost segregation study where they're doing things called takeoffs, which is basically an itemized list of all the components of a building. These can be very extensive. They should be done by engineering or architect type professionals, not just CPAs and not just a software algorithm. So that's the first interesting thing that I kind of took away from what you said that probably drives the price up on a more high quality cost seg. But the other thing that I think listeners would benefit from hearing is just a little bit on what the IRS is looking at when they're looking at a cost segregation study. Because really the IRS, they put out audit technique guides that cover the different levels of reliability in a cost seg study. And they actually have six levels. You kind of mentioned the first level and first meaning the top tier, the one that stands to have the most weight if it was ever examined by the IRS, which is a detailed engineering approach based on actual cost records. You know, that's the kind of study we're talking about here, Isaac. We're not talking about tiers two through six. Six being, I guess, it's called, it's literally called the rule of thumb. It's not guessing, but it's effectively just taking your thumb and saying, yep, I've done this so many times that I'm guessing that there's about 15% of a reclass in there. And those have to be conservative to even stand a chance. So the way I see it, and correct me if I'm wrong, as you move up those tiers, you kind of start to be able to take a stronger position towards reclassifications just because, you know, there's more that goes into it and you have more to substantiate your position. If I remember correctly, I think out of tiers one through six, softwares fall at tier five, which is the sampling or the modeling approach, which is only one above just rule of thumb. So just just so our listeners get some sense of why there's such a variation in the different types of cost seg studies out there, I think that that would really help for most of them. No, for sure. And very, very well said. And I have friends that do the world, they buy rentals and they're like, I say to them, hey, when am I doing your cost seg work? And they're like, hey, we just do rule of thumb. If we get audited, we'll just quickly do a cost seg study or something like that. I, I don't buy that. I'm not that type of guy. And again, I don't like bashing anybody. I think the software approach has some legitimacy to it, but like you said, it's tier five. But I think the most important factor, and I think it's just so important to know, if you're gonna do rule of thumb or software and you're gonna leave meat on the bone, you're ultimately cheating yourself. You think you're saving money, but you're really not. Besides the fact that when you hire a legitimate cost firm, they won't just do the study, they'll walk you through the process exactly of, like for example, I'll just, like I said earlier, I'll get onto calls with my sponsors, and explain to different investors what they could do. So they're getting my time and my expertise. Um, exactly. And a lot of times I'll actually win investors for some of my clients' deals through the way I explain it. They're like, hey, because depreciation is a big play. People obviously are investing in deals, not just for depreciation, but depreciation is definitely a factor. So yeah, like you said, there's different tiers. I think it's important to know what you're buying. You get what you pay for. And uh definitely good to keep in mind. Yeah, for sure. Well said. With this whole topic, I want to ask about kind of one thing that comes to mind. If you think about big elephants in the room with cost segregation studies in general, depreciation in general, just the outlook that we have for the next few years. And one of the things that I have a lot of clients who come and ask me about is the depreciation, the bonus depreciation phasing out gradually over time. 
And I'm sure you've had clients come to you and ask the same thing. So for our listeners, what's essentially happening starting in 2023, this would be the first year of the quote unquote phase out. We have bonus depreciation, which is this special allowance of depreciation. It allows for a large deduction in the first year. That's what we've been referencing throughout this episode, right? Through 2022, since the inception of the Tax Cut and Jobs Act, when it came into effect a few years back, we've had the ability to take certain assets 100% deducted in the first year. Now, in 2023, that's moving down to 80%, where the remaining 20% of the cost is now needing to spread over the same number of years it would have been before TCJA, the Tax Cut and Jobs Act. In future years, it's going to step down to 60 in 2024, 40, so on, so on, until we see a, a gradual step down in bonus depreciation. It's, it's called the phase out. The question I have for you, Isaac, is twofold. One, do you have a lot of clients coming to you with concerns about whether a cost seg is worth it after the bonus depreciation phases out? And two, if you do, what are you saying back to them? It's a great point. Another, another topic that I deal with a lot, especially towards the end of the year, people are trying to close before the end of the year so they can get the 80% as opposed to 60% if they close five days later in Jan January 5th. Definitely people are busy with this. It really makes a domino effect back to their investors as well. Generally, the smaller properties are the ones that are most affected because then if a guy comes to me with a $300,000 property and in 2022, he was going to get 80 grand as first year benefits and now he's only going to get 65 grand, it changes the picture a little bit, especially if it's a $200,000 property. So the bigger the property that you have, the less it will dictate, I guess, a difference. Um, obviously, it's not as enjoyable because you get less, but most people with a $2 million purchase and above will do it anyways. I'm not saying they'll do it in 2027 when it goes down to, zero. I think 2027 is the last year. That'll be 20%. 2028, I think, will be the first year of 0% bonus. But I want to let the listeners know something that is a big, big misconception. Prior to September of 2017, when bonus depreciation was introduced, cost segregation was still a billion-dollar industry, okay? Even before bonus depreciation was introduced, you always were able to accelerate the 27 and a half certain components of the 27 and a half and 39-year property to the 5 and 15-year buckets, which you'll always still be able to do even after bonus depreciation phases out. So it's very, very important to know. That's A. Now, B... There's many misconceptions along the lines of when you do the study. People think, hey, I got to do the study before the end of the year. That's not true. I can do a study. I post about this on LinkedIn all the time. If you come to me in 2030 and you bought a property in 2022 and you want to do cost seg, you can still get 100% bonus. Obviously, we got to take the depreciation schedule and, and minus off um, all the depreciation you took, but it's all, it all goes after. It all depends on when you close the property and place it into service doesn't matter when you do the study. Very important for people to know that. Now, to address some of the other points you made, so it's going down, like you said, 80% in 2023, 60% in 2024, so on and so forth. Something to just keep in mind, like I said, you'll always be able to accelerate it into the five and 15-year buckets. So if you have a million-dollar property and we identify, let's say, 10% of the property as five-year components, carpet, flooring, chandeliers, those types of items, You'll get it over five years. And also, just to dig into something that you said, in 2023, when you only get 80% of what we identify, the remaining 20%, I believe, you'll get over the five and 15-year track. It won't go back to the 27 and a half and 39, because that we identified. So important to know a lot, a lot of important points. You don't have to do it that year. It goes after when it's placed into service. You can do a look back study 
lots of people don't know this. You bought a property four years ago. You're allowed to go ahead and do a cost act today. We can do catch up retroactively. But definitely the smaller properties are definitely more of a question if it's worth it to do. Um, it was like a no brainer sometimes before 2023. Now it's like, hey, maybe not. In 2024, it's like, oh my God, 60%. The $300,000 properties might yeah. fall uh, fall to the yeah, bottom. Yeah, I, I could see that happening. Um, I love the look back studies, especially in years that people qualify as a real estate professional. And this is actually something that we help our clients with a lot where, you know, I buy a property this year, I buy a property in 2022 and 2021, I'm going backwards, but I've built a small portfolio. I'm working a full-time job and my spouse quits because we have kids and and she's going to be a stay-at-home mom. And now I'm going to set her up to manage our portfolio, qualify as a real estate professional. In that year, we can retroactively cost segregate everything we've previously purchased. And we effectively spike that year with losses that would have been passive, but now they're non-passive because my spouse qualifies as a real estate professional and materially participates in the portfolio. Now, there's a lot of nuance there, but that is the macro idea of how that works. You can spike tax years with losses if you've built a portfolio and you haven't cost-segged. You can retroactively grab those tax benefits. So I just wanted to point that out real quick. But let's get back onto the topic of bonus depreciation, Isaac. Are there any like whispers about extending it? Have you heard anything tax legislation wise? I know that there was like some sort of grassroots thing popping up in a I believe it's Atlanta, Georgia, wasn't it? There was some like there's like a whole little committee there talking about it. No. Isaac started Isaac's that, started I heard it. actually. Yeah. Isaac was the one. We had a condition here. We had a condition before we started that we're not going to talk about politics, and this is going to lead into politics. Right here. I'll, I'll tell you very simply. I believe, I'm not telling you if I'm a Democrat or Republican and who I support, whether it's Trump, Nikki Haley, or uh, Joe Biden. All I can tell you is one thing. If the Republicans take over the White House in 2024, I do believe that bonus appreciation will be extended if not, I believe it will not be extended. Simple as that. Now, obviously, it's more nuanced, but that's my belief. But yeah, let's see what happens. Time will tell. <laughs> I've always thought, now, we're not going to make this political, so there's no rebuttals to this. There's no comments to this, but just my own observation. I've always thought that if you were to look at both sides of the aisle and just see who owns real estate and who would be behooved to make real estate ownership tax favorable. I've always seen that as a bipartisan thing, just because more often than not, you see all sorts of people owning real estate on both sides of the aisle. So it's, and maybe that's the reason we've seen so many of these things stay in the code where other things have been scrutinized and maybe taken out of the code over the years. So, but again, not meant to be political. It's just mere speculation at this point. No, no, I hear you, Dylan. I hear you. Uh, respectfully, I don't know if I 100% agree. I hear you though. I definitely think that the Republicans generally are more in favor of these types of things. It could be there are a lot of Democrats that are into it as well, but they're, the second you get to a drop to the left, they're more very in favor of paying taxes. I'll never forget a phone call that I made earlier on in my career. I cold called the guy. I was talking about COSAC and he said, hey, why would I want to reduce my tax liability? I like paying taxes. I like my government. I like paying. I was like, I was like, dude, I said... <laughs> I, I respect you, but I don't think uh, I don't think most of America agrees with you. <laughs> <laughs> 
Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, I can imagine that there's somebody out there and maybe you found him. I've never found that person, but there, there's somebody apparently. So kudos to him. Big thanks out to that guy, <laughs> right? <laughs> I wanted to circle back just to one thing that you were talking about, because you spilled a lot of great knowledge and just a couple of minutes ago talking about all the different things that you're seeing with cost eggs and some of the benefits. And one thing that I would be remiss if I didn't circle back and just mention was, and you can probably agree with this, Isaac, we, we see so many cost segregation studies putting the vast majority of the reclassed items in what we call the five-year bucket. I'd say most of it, I'd say maybe three quarters, would you say is a good average percentage that you see out of the total amount reclassified? I'd say three quarter of it goes to that, that five-year on average. One thing I want listeners to be aware of, because you said it, Isaac, and I just want to reiterate it, make sure everybody heard it, was that no matter whether we have bonus or not, there's a portion of that that is going to be five years, and that's taken over five years. What listeners should understand is that the way that that five years is calculated, it is not done over a straight line. So it's not 20% every one of those five years. Dylan, the, Dylan first the, year, the CPA that I was talking about <laughs> earlier. I had to. With my carpet example. To. Carpet, $10,000 divided by five. Don't flame me because I know it's not that simple. <laughs> okay, guys, here, here's how you actually deduct the $10,000 of carpet. Go. So, so it, it's not straight line. It's not 10,000 divided by five. But no. tell them how you deduct it. No. I'm sorry, Brandon. I had to. I had to. And I'm picking on you. But okay, so five years. Let's just I'm only gonna talk about the first year. The first year is forty percent. The first year, no matter what, if it's placed in service, it's gonna be forty percent, not twenty percent, because it's an accelerated double declining balance is the term used, right? So without getting into the minutiae here, because that is a is a purely tax concept. Most of our listeners never need to know, but all that is to say that you can almost think of that as a 40% floor when you're doing a cost seg, right? For your five-year property, even if bonus depreciation is down to 20% or zero, we know that whatever's not bonus eligible is still going to be 40% in the first year. So I like to remind people that it's a little bit like a floor. And the benefit of that is that it's not bonus. You know, it might still be subject to ordinary recapture, but if you hold the property for a shorter period of time, it probably won't be so. Let's actually expand on this example because it's a really good point that you're making that you have this 40% floor for your five-year property. So Isaac, when you purchase a property and you do the cost seg, can you, and I'm not going to hold you to it, everybody, this is not tax advice, go get your own advisors. What percentage of the overall bonus depreciation or the overall value shift to five, seven, and 15 year property, what percentage ends up being five year property, roughly? It's a great question, but I'll tell you, no two properties are created equal. When I do a self storage facility, it will defer tremendously than when I do a garden style multifamily property. Yeah, forget about garden style. When I do a regular multifamily property. Let's simplify it and let's just focus on multifamily and let's just use simple numbers. A million dollar multifamily property, we're doing the cost seg, $300,000 is allocated to five, seven, and 15-year property. How much of that 300000 is allocated to five-year property? I would say anywhere from 12 to 15%. Unless we're dealing with a garden-style multifamily where you have tennis courts and basketball courts and all that stuff that are considered land improvements that go over 15 years, you'll get a lot more in the 15-year bucket. But in a traditional multifamily that's not garden-style, I'd say 12 to 15% will be uh, 12 to 15 per- Sorry. Of the purchase price? I'm sorry, I, I, I miscalculated there. If you, out of, out of what we identify, that's what I was using the number, meaning to say, I'm, I'm keeping it in my head, we identify 25% of the purchase price as five and 15 year components. So 12 to 15% out of that will be. So I would say, what is that? Let's say 60% of it. 
so if we've got a million dollar property and we've identified 300k 120 to 150 i would say more no sorry i would say more i would say 200 so we're talking what is that 66 percent? yeah so two hundred thousand dollars times 40 percent for the first year this is zero percent bonus depreciation you still are accelerating quite a lot in that first year even if bonus depreciation was zero dollars so really uh really good call out there dylan that's that's a a really really great point dylan that i've heard of um i haven't delved uh crazy into it we Um, had to right we've had bonus depreciation (laughs) exactly (laughs) and i will now (laughs) because that's something really really good to know that i think will make a very big difference in 2024 when we're only gonna be getting 60 percent this year since it was 80 percent, it was like yeah it was like annoying for everybody because they're used to getting 100 but it was like close enough that it didn't make too much of a difference 60% 60% it's like, hey, that's like half of what I used to yeah. be getting. I think it's an important, mm-hmm. important point. And obviously in 2028, if nothing changes, this will be uh, a very, very important, important factor to implement. Yeah, I think I, I did a, this is me being a nerd, guys. So don't make fun of me, right? But I did a quick analysis of about four or five different cost segs that my clients had gotten. And I backed into what the actual percentage of first year calculation would be after we drop down to 80% bonus for the first year of the reclass portion, what percentage is actually going to be depreciated in the first year? It's not 80%. It's actually closer to about 85% on average is what I was seeing because you think the other 20% that isn't subject to bonus, there's still going to be a large portion of that that is depreciated in the first year anyway. So I was seeing anywhere from 84 to 86. So I just took an average and I've been telling clients 85% is really what we're going to be seeing realistically on average. And you know, don't take that to the bank or anything. Like I said, that's just a very high level, but it's a very great point, Dylan. I couldn't even control myself. I was so excited. What you're saying is because many people don't realize that they'll tell me, Hey, you're identifying this, but I see the numbers on the other page. It says this because after we take what we take year one uh, through the bonus, you take the traditional 27 and a half years and you get the regular depreciation from that as well. Absolutely. Great, great point. I like it. I want to touch very briefly because we are coming up on time. Very briefly on the major benefit that like nobody ever talks about with cost seg studies. So we always talk about bonus depreciation and you know all that type of stuff. Time value of money and all that's the sexy stuff. But nobody ever talks about partial asset dispositions. And like I see it as a massive opportunity for people that have owned real estate for a number of years where you've done improvements. Like if your accountant hasn't brought up partial asset dispositions, they might not be doing it for you on the back end. So what are partial asset dispositions and how do cost segs help with that? Absolutely. And this is something, again, I deal with on a daily. When people do renovations and they do rehabs to properties, a lot of times we deal with these multifamily guys that come in and their traditional, uh, mindset and what they're doing is is they're value adding the property there's so much meat on the bone renovations sometimes we can get 50 percent back of what they spent sometimes less it depends obviously if it's structural uh stuff that they did but many times it's new flooring vinyl flooring cabinetry chandeliers windows um these are all all amenities like uh, appliances these are all items that have tremendous depreciation value and just an example i sent out a report today for a guy who did like a gut reno. But one of the one of the downsides of doing a gut reno is that the actual purchase, there's just very little meat left on the bone. Because if you do a reno right away, then we can't give you benefits for the carpet that you used to have because you threw it in the garbage. But in terms of the reno that you did, 
we're talking about sometimes 50, 60% of the reno, the construction budget balance. And there's a lot of meat on the bone there and something that a lot of people don't know. And it's something to know. And once we're on this topic, I would like for just one minute, if it's okay, to talk about double dipping. It's something that I like to tell my clients. A client is closing a property today, November, what's it, 30, November 30th. This is a perfect example. They close on a property today and they rip out all the carpet today and all the flooring today. They're not going to be able to benefit from a purchase study as much. Way two months or a few months. And if it's in two separate calendar years, you could benefit from the purchase and benefit from the renovation at its full capacity. So I don't know. That doesn't always work for people. They want to do it right away. But just something to keep in mind, if it's in two separate calendar years, generally you could double dip. Let's actually back up a little bit and let's talk about what a partial asset disposition is because you're talking about front loading on the front end which is awesome and i like that you made that clarification about the double tax years because that is important but a partial asset disposition can occur at any time during ownership so the idea is that if you have a building that has a roof well all the buildings have roofs so you have a building that has a roof um, you later replace the roof, right? Maybe you go five years and, and then you've got to do a roof replacement. Well, whether or not you get a cost segregation study done, that roof that you replaced has value, right? And you are depreciating that roof. So when you replace it and you add a new roof and you rip off the old roof, then in theory, you should also immediately deduct the value associated with the old roof that no longer exists that you ripped out. Right. Because if you don't deduct the cost of the old roof that no longer exists, then even though you have one brand new roof, you are effectively depreciating two roofs. And so a partial asset disposition enables you to take that deduction. But a cost segregation study makes the partial asset dispositions easier because if you don't do a cost seg study and you go and replace the roof, first off, your accountants are not going to catch that. And I would love to sing our praises and talk about how amazing we are. But look, if it's March 14th, we ain't going to catch that either, right? New roof, boom, that's what we're depreciating. But what you want to do to optimize is you want to be able to say, wait a second, the new roof is replacing a roof that's no longer there. So we should be taking a deduction for the roof that's no longer there. And if you get a cost segregation study, that study will identify the value of that roof at the beginning of the ownership period. So when you make that roof replacement, you've got the value that you can start indexing. And it's it, there's a lot more complicated pieces to this. So it is very nuanced, but you can at least take that deduction. It's a lot easier to identify it and actually execute it when you get a cost segregation study done. So everybody talks about cost segregation studies as being very beneficial at the beginning, which they are, but we have found them beneficial with our clients throughout the hold period because we'll keep those cost segs on file. And when those improvements go in, that's what we're looking at. We're looking at, hey, should we be pulling anything out of the property as things are going into it? And that's great tax optimization over time. And you don't have to recapture it. Like it's, it's amazing, yeah. but not a lot of people are doing it. Mm -hmm. Great points. Great, great points. Yes. I'm going to swing into the last segment here. Honestly, this has been a great talk. I think a lot of our listeners are going to hear this episode. And I hope everybody learned at least one thing about cost segregation studies. I know I did. I learned at least one thing. But with that said, we're at the end of our episode. We've got time here. I have one last question for you, Isaac. And we're going to call this one the Streamline Spotlight. So tell me, what technology have you most recently adopted to streamline your business or professional workflow 
that has made you more effective? It can be anything. The easy answer is AI. That's the easy answer that nine out of 10 people are going to answer, but it's the truth. Um, it's made my life easier in a lot of different ways. It performs tasks for you at, a, obviously, you know this, at a much faster pace. Um, I like being very personal when I speak and email clients. So I don't just like say AI type of my emails and those types of things. But when I'm putting together bios and when I'm putting together, um, I speak at a, a few events a year and I'm putting together different newsletters and stuff like that. It's been a tremendous, tremendous resource. Um, yeah, that's that's basically it. That's what I've in, implemented. I'm not a big tech guy. I'm more old style in the sense that I love being personable. Like I'll go to each and every one of my clients every few months that are in my area, visit them. I'm not like that little geek behind the computer just doing everything from there. <laughs> I like, uh, I'm very relationship based, but AI has made my life easier. Um, it's not really technology, but VAs have made my life easier really to be able to delegate and certain tasks that I could focus more on actual outreach, speaking to more people. So yeah, absolutely. Got it. Well, pretty soon they're going to be one and the same, I'd say, virtual assistants and exactly. AI. I mean, but hey, I really appreciate that. We could talk for hours on that. I know that's probably a lot of people's answer these days, but I appreciate the insight. Isaac, if people are listening to the show and they want to reach out to you, how do they do that? LinkedIn. I'm happy to give my phone number and my email. I'd love to talk to each and every one of you, but LinkedIn, I'm very active. I will respond to you on LinkedIn within a few hours. I haven't, in the past couple of years, I think there hasn't been one day that I haven't been on LinkedIn for a few hours. That's where a lot of my business is generated, a lot of connections that I make and I take offline, get into Zoom calls, meet in person. But yeah, that's the start. Awesome, man. Uh, well, we'll link to your profile on the show notes. Isaac, thanks so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Major League Real Estate Podcast. There are three ways that you can connect with us. If you're interested in getting email updates on upcoming shows, go to www.mlrepodcast.com and subscribe there. If you'd like to explore a tax and accounting relationship with our CPA firm, you can go to www.therealestatecpa.com slash MLRE and fill out the web form to get started. And if you'd like to connect with Dylan or I on social media, you can find us on LinkedIn and Twitter. Just search Dylan Brown CPA or Brandon Hall CPA. Shoot us a request. We'd love to connect. We'll see you next time.